Good evening. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be with you this evening. I come with uh, greetings from HBC Joburg, and I think it is a sentiment that is shared by most that side when I say that, you know, we always long that we could visit more and then come in fellowship with you guys more often. And so whenever we do get a chance, it indeed is a, a privilege for us to be here and a joy. And every time we are here, we are encouraged by the work that we see the Lord doing here, that we see that indeed there's always new faces that is adding to the numbers here, and that indeed we, we share stories of how there is growth in maturity in this church. And so with that, we praise and thank the Lord. And so as, as Brother Rian mentioned, my name is Mahlwani, and uh, as we were speaking, I think I spoke mostly with Pastor Mike in the week, and one thing that they forgot to talk to me about was how long the sermons here normally are. So I guess we were in for a surprise. It could be after 10 minutes I say thank you, or it could be after two hours I say thank you, but we'll see where we end up. <laughs> Let me pray for us, and then we shall consider the text. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this evening with expectant hearts, Asking that, Father, you may help us to hear from your word, Lord. I pray for me, Lord, as I share from your word that you may carry me by your grace. We pray for all hearers, Lord, that hearts may be softened, that, Father, they may be receptive to your word, and Lord, then indeed, Father, hearers may be saved and sanctified. We ask that indeed you be glorified through all this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text for this evening is found in uh, the hymn book of the Bible, that is the book of Psalms. And indeed, the, the, the Psalms are a collection of hymns. And so this evening, we'll be looking at Psalm 53, which is, again, one of the, the hymns that are found within the book of Psalms. And oftentimes, when we read through the Psalms, in a lot of them, you can obviously tell that it's a song because, you know, they include words like we sing to the Lord, make a, uh, we shout to the Lord, or make a joyful noise to the Lord. So it, it becomes immediately obvious that this is a song. And so whenever we look at those ones, we know that they are songs. But with our psalm this evening, it doesn't include those kinds of words that make it obvious that it is a song. But for our benefit in the heading, it tells us that it is a song because of who it is addressed to. It says to the choir master, according to Malahath, a masculine of David. So this is a song that was composed and was given to the musicians of Israel to say that in one of the occasions, this will be a song that would be appropriate for the nation of Israel to sing. And, you know, we've got 150 psalms. They all have different types of genres, and they are fit for different occasions. And so as I say that, the psalms are the hymn book of the, the Old Testament, the hymn book of the Bible. They are all very different. You know, there are psalms that are for a time of rejoicing. We, we find psalms that are appropriate when Israel is glad. And we also find psalms for, for a time of sadness. When Israel is mourning, when Israel is cast down, there are psalms that are appropriate for that setting. When Israel is lamenting over its sin, there are psalms that are appropriate for that particular setting. And that is the nature of music, right? Similarly with us, we have songs that are fit for each and every occasion. You know, when you go to a soccer game, there are songs that they sing in that game as they are rejoicing and celebrating what's happening there. And then if you go to a birthday party, there are different songs that are sung there. You know, so we've got different songs that we sing in the different occasions where we find ourselves rejoicing. Or when we are sad, we also have songs that are appropriate for that particular setting. If you go to a funeral, there are songs that people sing in that setting that are appropriate for that particular setting. And for those who listen to music, I, I've come across people who have songs that they listen to when they feel down, songs that they can help uplift them. 
And so the, the hymn book of the Bible, or the book of Psalms, has psalms that are appropriate for every occasion. And so this evening I've titled the message, uh, A Song for the Occasion. So because this is a song that was given by the, to the choir master for a particular occasion. And this evening I want us to consider what is the occasion for which the psalm was given. And as we read through it, it will become apparent what that occasion is. And so this song, the occasion for which it was written, or the occasion in which Israel was given this song to sing it in, was after a time where, and in this commentators, most of them agree that this is probably the setting in which the psalm was written, that where Israel had previously been attacked and survived and had been delivered, and now are living in a state of fear because the attackers are again at their doorstep. You know, they are living in a time where they, they, they are in fear. You know, and we see, we'll see in the psalm there that they are in great terror. And so this song meets them in that occasion that they find themselves, where they are living in fear of being attacked by their enemies. And so for us, you know, when we think of this context that this psalm was written for Israel when they were in fear of being attacked by enemies, it, it might be a bit difficult for us to immediately identify with this context, you know, uh, Clearly, for us in South Africa today, we live in a time of peace. You know, we are not at war with any nation. We don't have the threat of being invaded. But there are Christians today in the world who are living in times of war. There are Christians today who are living in nations, in repressive regimes where they are being persecuted. And so the, the fear of being attacked and of people coming in and pillaging exists in those kinds of settings. And really the state in which Israel is finding themselves here, and I, you know, I don't know if you've watched a lot of the ancient types of things, or even when you read through the Old Testament, when they describe what an invasion looks like, where people come, they break your houses, they burn down your houses, they take women and children, they kill all the men. It is not a good sight to behold. And so we can understand why they might find themselves in a state of fear when they think that yet another attack might befall them. And so, as I said, you know, for us, we live in a, in a relatively peaceful time. But I think there are certain instances, even in the South African context, that can lead to us living in fear. You know, when you look at the state of crime in our country, I think there are instances where if you've been a victim of crime yourself or you know family members or friends who've been victims of crime, it can lead one to live in a state of fear, a state of worrying that I might just be attacked again. And one of the things that the Israelites are also thinking about and that the psalm will also bring about as we go through it here is that there's not only just the fear that I might be attacked, but there's also this question, especially when you've lived through the, the evil acts of people, where you wonder what kind of human being is capable of doing the kinds of evil that people do. You know, as you said, like if you read through the Old Testament, you see what happens when a nation is invaded, when a nation gets plundered. You know, there is that question of who is capable of this amount of evil? And even in our own context, you know, when we hear of different instances of crime, when you hear what people have done to other human beings, you do, you are left wondering who is capable of doing these kinds of things? What kind of person does these kinds of crimes? You know, there was a, a story recently in the news about a, a family or in Peter Marisbeck. I don't have all the context, but from what I read in terms of what happened, that people went into a house where there were 15 people, and they asked, they got those people to undress, they poured fluent on them and set them alight. Like, what kind of person does such a thing? And this is the context or the, the questions that this psalm or this song will try and will be answering for us this evening. That even as you are in fear that you'll be attacked, it brings that reassurance, but it also helps to contextualize the enemies that are out there, the people that would dare come and attack us. And I think 
so there, there is obviously the, the, the instances of fear that are there, but that is not where it ends. Because for us as Christians, you know, the fight against sin for a Christian can also be leave one in this kind of a state. You know, the fighting against sin can sometimes become tiresome where you just want a break, where you want the temptations to end. You fought and you've been fighting and now you're just in a state where, can I just not get some relief? You know, you're not in fear of being attacked, but you're in a state where you're looking for deliverance. And so this psalm will also speak to those who find themselves in such a situation, for it is a difficult thing, as the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 7, where he says that I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. You know, finding yourself in that state, that state of fighting and being tired and just wanting some reprieve. You know, and this psalm comes to us to, to, to comfort and console those who are in a state of terror, in a state of fear, who are seeking to have peace. But as I mentioned, it starts off by contextualizing for ourselves what kind of people are capable of the kinds of vile acts that we see out there. And with that said, let us read through the psalm and then we'll consider it. So Psalm 53, we'll be reading all the six verses. It starts off in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as bread, as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So that is our text that we'll be looking at this evening, and it opens off, and and, and rather just the structure that we're going to take in looking at these six verses of the text. We will break it down into three sections. So in the first section, we'll look at verses 1 to 4, where the psalmist gives us a diagnosis of the state and nature of these attackers. And then in verse 5, we see the psalmist show us God's action in judgment. And in verse 6, we'll see the hope for restoration. So starting off in verse 1, the psalm opens up with a declaration. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, as we're thinking about what kind of people are these that have the people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel in fear, what kind of people are these that will come and attack and pillage these people, we are told here that these people are fools who have said in their hearts that there is no God. And the word fool that's used there is not intellectual foolishness. You know, we're not saying they are fools because they are not wise in, in the standards that, that you know, they are not smart or, or book smart, as we can call it. But this is moral foolishness. They are fools because they have said that there is no God. They are created beings that have denied that there is a creator. And oftentimes when we think of people who deny the existence of God, you know, we've got the philosophical guys who make pronouncements with their mouths that there is no God. The so-called atheists would say that they have made a determination, they've looked around and they've weighed up things and they've come to a conclusion that there is no God. And the Bible here does call them fools, for they have taken a stance that there is no God. But it is not only the atheists who the Bible calls fools, even the agnostics the Bible calls fools. For they are not taking a stand saying that we say that there is a God who we are going to honor, but they're saying, I don't know. 
that might as well be saying that I don't think there is a God because you're not honoring God. You're not living your life in honor of God. And so we see here that there would be those people who make the pronouncements with their mouths from their own philosophical understanding to say that there is no God. And this evening you might be sitting here and thinking, you know, then I am not that kind of fool because that's not what I say. You know, I don't say that the God does not exist. But as I said, that this foolishness that is described here is moral foolishness. You know, you might not make the statement with your mouth and say that there is no God, but the moral corruption that can be found in you speaks those words that says that there is no God. You know, if we live in such a way that we deny the existence of God, we conduct ourselves as if there was no judge that is going to call us to account one day. We treat people as if they are not created in the image of God. That says then that we are saying indeed that there is no God. Our actions speak forth. For ultimately, what is the psalmist saying here? He's not saying that the fool has said with his mouth there is no God. He said the fool has said in his heart. It is what flows now out of that heart, where in your heart you have made a determination that you don't think there is a God, and that flows out in the actions. It flows out in how we walk and how we carry ourselves. And so that is how the, the psalmist opens here that, you know, the fool says in his heart that there is no God, and because he is a fool, what flows out of that heart of foolishness is this, the, the, the denial of who God is. They ignore God. And he opens up with, with that state that these people are fools who have denied their creator. And having made that declaration, the psalmist proceeds to tell us what flows out of this kind of a person. You know, the person who's foolish enough to deny his own creator. What can you expect from this kind of a person? He goes on to say there in verse 1 that they are corrupt doing abominable iniquity. These people who have denied God, they do abominable iniquity. They do very bad and terrible immoral acts. And as we were saying earlier in the introduction that, you know, what kind of people do these kinds of vile acts that we see around us? It is these kind of people who have denied their God. Because it is only once someone has denied that God exists that they can give themselves the license to act in such a way, where they've given themselves over to sin in such a way that they go forth to do these kind of vile acts that we see being done by people. You know, just grave acts of evil that we see that are being done here. And they, these acts flow from people who have denied the existence of their God. But the psalmist then continues, it is not only that they do abominable acts of iniquity, but they also do not do any good. It says there is none who does good. You know, they are, they are, what characterizes them, what flows out of them, it is not just these vile acts, but it is also the lack of anything that is good. And you might be thinking there that, you know, how, how true then is this statement to say that there is none who does good? You know, for clearly we see that as people we do do some good acts every once in a while, you know, we we show kindness to other people. You know, even the, the most vile of people know how to show love to their own relatives. And I think commentators have said that, you know, if we were to think of the most vile person who's ever lived, you know, and I think Hitler fits that description, that those who were closest to him, and someone once said he probably loved his own mother, you know. So, yes, these people are vile and evil, but there are some good things that we can say that they do. And so when now here the psalmist tells us that there is none who does good, what is the psalmist saying here? What kind of good is this that is not found in anyone out there? And here the psalmist is talking about moral goodness, the kind of good acts that can meet the standard of being pleasing and acceptable to God. This is not goodness according to our own definition, how we have decided that what we think is good and what we think is not good, but this is goodness as defined by God himself. 
You know, for Christ even says in Matthew seven eleven that, you know, that people being evil know how to good give, good give good gifts to each other. Right? So they know how to do these kinds of good things. But when it comes to the ultimate standard of goodness, there is none who does good, as the psalmist says here. And that is attested to when, by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, who says that those that are in the flesh cannot please God in Romans 8, 8. You know, he's saying that it, those who are in the state of foolishness, those who are in the state that they have denied God, what flows out of them is that their actions cannot please God. And so we see here from this text that, you know, people are moral fools, or rather those who say that there is no God are moral fools. And this is proved by their own actions. These sinful actions that flow from them prove that indeed they are fools morally, as the Bible tells us, that they do not do any good, that they are by nature children of wrath. And therefore now for us here, knowing this about the state of man, knowing that people who have denied the existence of God are fools, and out of that foolish heart flows these vile acts, we should then never be surprised when we see man commit abominable acts. When we see these vile things that have been committed, we should not be asking and wondering to ourselves, what kind of human being does these kinds of things? For the scripture tells us it is those who have denied that there is a God. For that is what flows out of that. And what should actually surprise us, you know, if we were to ever be surprised and wonder, is when we see men do good things. You know, that is what should surprise us. When we see people doing evil things, that should not surprise us. You know, theologians have uh, this saying where they say that, you know, the, the heathens will heath. You know, that's what sinners do. Sinners sin. And so we should never then be surprised when we see sinful people doing sinful acts. And that is what we see here now as, as the psalmist is opening up this psalm and the song, speaking to the people of Israel. He starts off by contextualizing for them who are these attackers. They are people who have denied God. And then he continues on in verse 2 to say that now the, the God comes down to judge. You know, there's a declaration that happens in verse 1, but in verse 2 now we see an assessment. You know, humanity is sitting there. A declaration has been made that there are fools and there is none who does good. But now God comes to do an assessment of his creation. He, we are told there in verse 2 that God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. It is God himself who comes up to weigh up humanity on the scales. And, excuse me, the standard that he uses to evaluate man is his own law and his own commandments. Now, God does not come down to look at man in this way using the standard that we use to evaluate ourselves. But he comes down using his own standard to evaluate us, to see if there are any within creation who seek after him or who understand. And so we see here that, you know, everyone is being evaluated, for we're told that God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. The psalm started off as a, when we saw it as a song of consolation to the people of Israel. And when they are hearing this psalm being sung, the expectation is that the focus is outside. It is looking at those attackers, those people that would come and pillage us. But now we are told here that God looks down and evaluates all of man, the attackers and the Israelites themselves. Because you know, God, he created all of them. And so he comes and weighs them up all on the scales to see if there are any who do good and if there are any who understand. As we are told there, that he looks to see that, is there any within humanity who've got understanding? Or have they all been blinded by Satan? They are not seeking after God. Their minds have become corrupted. 
And we see here that he's seeking to see, are there any who seek after him? Those who seek to know God, who seek to worship God and to give thanks to him. And so the one who comes to evaluate humanity is God himself. And this truth right here is something that should terrify us. And so oftentimes I find it quite interesting that people, when they are confronted with their sins, when they are being called to order, when they don't want to account, they say words like, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. God knows my heart. And I think about that, I'm like, what a foolish thing to say. How do you say that I want the one who sees all things, the one from whom I cannot hide anything, to be the one who comes to judge me? You know, human judges only see partially. But God sees all of our motives. He sees all of our thoughts. You know, many of the things that are hidden from human judges, God sees. But yet someone thinks it is best to take refuge in saying, I will have God be the one who comes to do the assessment on me. And as we've seen that God, when he comes to do the assessment, he doesn't use human standards. He does the assessment. He weighs people up according to his own law and commandments. And so I find it quite a foolish thing for people to say that I would rather be God, God be the one that judges me. But secondly, the thing that also is foolish with that is, you know, human punishment is only human. For someone to say that I would rather God judge me again, how do you say I will subject myself, I would rather subject myself to the judgment of the holy God of the universe? You know, it's quite a foolish thing. And again, just speaking to the nature of humanity here, as the psalmist opens in verse 1, that there are fools who say in their hearts that there is no God. So even as people say that I would rather God judge me, they don't believe that there is a God who would judge them. For if they did, they would be terrified of those words that they are saying. For indeed, God's judgment is not like man's judgment. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew 10, 28, that we should not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But we should rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So when God comes to judge, that is something that should bring great terror to people. When God comes to evaluate, it's not something that would put us, should put anyone at ease. For it is God coming with God's standard to evaluate man. So we see here in verse 2 that God comes down to do an evaluation of humanity. But what does God find? What is the finding of his assessment? Once he has come and weighed man in the scales, what does he find? Verse 3 answers that question for us. We read in verse 3, They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Lord has come down and looked at his creation. He's come to see if there are any who have understanding or any who seek after him. But what does he find? Everyone fails here. No one passes. As I mentioned, this psalm started off as looking outwardly as the attackers of Israel. But now God comes and looks at all of humanity. And the verdict he gives is that there is none who does good. They have all fallen away. They have all become corrupt. Humanity has fallen away from the ways of God. They have become corrupt. They have become corrupted in their nature. Therefore, that, such that what flows out of them is those abominable iniquities that we read about in verse 1. And we are told here that no one does good, not even one. The Lord looks and there is just none who can be found to meet his standards. You know, he, uh, the scales that you know, the Lord uses... Or, that are used to weigh up people. I don't know if you, before we have digital scales back in the day, they used to have those. Normally we see them on the, 
wherever there's signs of justice, you see those scales that, you know, the balancing scales. You know, God puts his law and commands on the one side and he puts humanity on the other. And we just kind of hold up. You know, we get swung and thrown up into the air because we just don't have anything in us that meets God's standard. And therefore, with that being said, it is then, again, a foolish thing for anyone to say that they think that they are good. For people have the habit of weighing themselves, weighing themselves up. You know, they look at their actions, they look at the way they live, and they say that I'm a good person. Or they go around weighing their friends and colleagues and their neighbors and their loved ones and saying to them, you know, I know you are a good person. You know, people weigh each other up and then give themselves this assessment that they are good people. But yet we know that the one who is the moral lawgiver has weighed humanity and everyone has failed. And this thing of people patting themselves on the back and saying that, you know, I'm a good person, we are a good, a good person, it, it's a, an act in futility. For ultimately, it means nothing. You know, it's like if you go to school and you're given an assignment to write, and, you know, you write it and you decide to mark it yourself and give yourself whatever mark you give yourself. It doesn't matter. Because ultimately, you are not the one who is going to supposed to evaluate that work. And so people like to go around, you know, evaluating themselves and saying to themselves, we are inherently good or we are good people. Deep down, I'm a good person. But what we're seeing from this psalm is that that is not the reality. For this psalm tells us that people are fools who have denied God and none of them do good and all they do is abominable deeds. And we see here in verse 3 that the Lord says they've all fallen away from his ways. He gave them a path to work on and they've fallen off. They have become corrupted in their nature, and there are no good acts that they do. And this is the state of all of humanity outside of Christ. All people who are outside of Christ, this is their state. There is none who does good, not even one. You know, not even the Israelites, they see themselves as, as they are God's covenant people, but even within that covenant people, this is the state of all people. So as I said, that the psalm starts off, you know, the Israelites are thinking it's talking about those attackers that come. But now it is hitting home. It is looking even at them and it's saying even within you, there is none who does good. The Apostle Paul, in, in, in looking at uh, commenting on this psalm uh, in, in Romans chapter 3, says these words again, just to show that it is everyone who is included. The Jews are not spared from this categorization that the, there is none who does good. In Romans chapter 3 from verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You can hear that Paul is even much more harsh here in his uh, declaration and diagnosis of the state of humanity. In stating emphatically that there is none who is righteous. There is none who does good. They've all become worthless, both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Gentiles. There is none who does good. And this is the state of humanity outside of Christ. And that is why the Apostle Paul later on says in verse 23 of, of Romans 3, that we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
That is the state that humanity finds themselves in. And so as we're thinking and, and, and pondering on the question, what kind of people are these that can do such abominable acts? It is people who have been ravaged by sin, and that is all of humanity outside of Christ. And so if you are sitting here this evening and you are not in Christ, this is what you are capable of. And sometimes we just have to be honest with ourselves. You know, sometimes you, when you do sit back and are honest with some of the thoughts that have crossed your mind, it can be quite a terrifying thing, the kind of capacity for evil that we've got. Humanity is sinful because they have rejected God. And that is what this psalm is saying here. Israel was expecting, or the Jews were expecting that, you know, it was just going to be a, a declaration about the nations outside. But now as we, the, we, the, the psalm is giving us an assessment and a state and evaluation of the nature and character of these attackers, it says this is the state of all men. And we know that outside of Christ, this is what we all wear. You know, and outside of Christ, this will remain the state of humanity. It is only through him that this foolish, rebellious heart is put to death. And we are raised to, as a new creation, capable of doing good. So if we do not come to Christ and repent of our sins and be born again and be created anew, this is the state of humanity. This is our state. That we are sinful people who are capable of all these vile acts and are not capable of any good. And so now, even though the statement was written firstly to the Jews, with the clarity we get from the New Testament, is that there's only two kinds of people in the world. It is the Christians and the fools. It sounds like a harsh statement, but it is the truth. Now, if you are not in Christ, you are a fool who has denied God. For that is the state that you find yourself in. It is only by being born again and being regenerated that we find ourselves being taken out of the state of foolishness, and of, of people that do these abominable acts. The psalm then continues into verse 4 with a rhetorical question. It says these words, Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? You know, the, the foolishness that we see in verse 1 it is not out of a lack of knowledge, but it is out of ignorance. And hence, verse 4 is really a rhetorical question. It's asking, have they no knowledge, these people who do these kinds of things? For the, the psalmist knows that they know. You know. They have the knowledge. It has been revealed to them, as Paul teaches us in Romans 1. But yet, in ignorance, they suppress this truth and therefore give themselves license to do these abominable acts. For what does Paul tell us in Romans 1.18? It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. The truth has been revealed, but yet man chooses to suppress it. And so here we see in verse 4, it says, have they no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread? They sin against each other in a way that it is second nature. It is so natural. It is just like them eating bread. The the, the they go about sinning each other in such a natural way that it is second nature to them. It's just what they do. You know, people don't think twice before they commit grave sins against each other. For some, it is almost that it is a way of sustaining themselves. As the psalmist says here, it's like they're just, they're eating bread. That is how much sin they are committing against each other. But they are doing this not because of a lack of knowledge, 
but because they've received the knowledge and if they've chosen to suppress it. They've chosen to suppress the truth. As Paul tells us that what can be seen about God is clearly revealed in creation. But men choose to suppress this truth. And not only are they sinning against each other, but they also do not honor God. For we see here that they do not call upon God. And the same charge we see there in Romans 1, Paul making it, that they do not give thanks to God. Though what can be known about God is clearly revealed, men choose not to give thanks and honor God. For that is the nature of the sinful people. That is what they do. And so now we've seen here in the first four verses of the text this diagnosis of the nature of humanity. It is not just a diagnosis of the nature of the attackers of Israel, but it is a diagnosis of all people who are haters of God and who have rejected God. But now what comes next? You know, for the Israelites, as they are sitting there, they are in fear, as we mentioned, because they are worried that the attackers might attack them again. And verse 5 tells us that they are in terror. You know, Israelites are sitting, says they are in great, they are in terror, in great terror where there is no terror. Verse 5 brings upon now that God judges these kinds of people. Verse 5 is saying to the Israelites, why are you in fear while you shouldn't be? You know, your God judges people who do these abominable acts. He delivers you from people who do these kinds of abominable acts. Therefore, why are you sitting and living in fear while you have a God like this on your side? For he says there, they are in terror where there is no terror. Why? For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. God destroys these enemies. These people who are corrupted and do abominable things, God destroys them. And so here, Israel is sitting in fear, but they shouldn't really be, be terrified. No, this psalm here now zones in on, 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 on them being fearful and terrified and tells them, you should not be terrified. Why? Because God will come down on these enemies in judgment. And this is not like judgment that we see here, for we are told that he scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. you know, here, you know, if you think about this graphically, Someone is killed and they die and they are left out until all the flesh has fallen off and now only the bones are left and now those bones are taken and scattered all over the place such that there is no hope of even being restored and gathered together again that you might even get a proper burial. That's the kind of judgment that falls on the people who reject God and say in their hearts that there is no God. And we are told there in verse 5 that they are also put to shame no, they thought that they were strong and wise, but they've now been defeated. Man in his sinfulness storms his chest and thinks that he's wise. You know, as we saw earlier, that man in their sinfulness will evaluate themselves and declare themselves good. But God will put all such people to shame. When he comes in judgment, when he comes, having evaluated man and he comes down in judgment, all of them will be put to shame. For this is the nature of all enemies of God. They think that they are winning that they are on top, but they will be put to shame. You know, Satan, working through the rulers and authorities at the time, thought that he had won when Christ was crucified on the cross. But what does Paul tell us in Colossians 2? Now, in verse 15 he says, He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You know, God is going to put all his enemies to shame. 
people who think that they are on top and that they're living their best lives and that they can do whatever they want will all be put to shame. They will be proved to be fools, as verse 1 tells us. They are fools who have denied God, and that reality might not have said in their minds as yet, but a time is coming when God will reveal that indeed they are fools and put them to shame. And similarly, you know, for for the believer who's struggling with sin, that Satan through sin might have declared victory to think that he's won over humanity and that all of people belong to him. But yet we know that through Christ, sin is defeated. The deeds of the flesh are put to death and that Satan will be put to shame. There is no enemy of God or enemy of God's people that will be left standing. God will reign triumphant. God will crush all of them. And so now as we think of those who, again, as we said earlier, that the psalm speaks to the people who are living in fear of being physically attacked, but it also speaks to those who are in the struggle against sin and are weighed down by just the challenges of constantly fighting and not getting any reprieve. And here this psalm also speaks to you. You know, we might be where you find yourself in a state where you're with, at peace with the world, but internally there's these struggles that are happening. What does the psalm t- say to you who, who you find yourself in that context? One, it says that God knows you. He knows your limitations. He knows your challenges. He knows your shortcomings. He knows your struggles. For ultimately, it is God who looks down on the sons of men. He is the one who sees down to our hearts. No, so all these challenges that you're going through as you're fighting, God knows it. Just as we've seen that God knows the nature of man who would commit such grave sinful acts. Even you, as you're struggling there, God knows you. And this sin nature that is at war with you is not stranger to the Lord. And it has been defeated on the cross. And this defeat is being worked out as you are being sanctified. There is victory over sin. And we are told in the scriptures that God is at work to set us free completely, to bring to fulfillment the freedom from sin that we have through Christ. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says these words, speaking to people as that just to reassure them that indeed God is working in them. In 2 Corinthians four sixteen to 17, he says these words, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So if you are now here finding yourself in a state where you're weighed down by sin, Paul says to you, do not lose heart. For day by day, God is at work renewing you The act of sanctification is there happening and working within you. There will be victory. Even sin, it will be judged and put to shame. Even death, the greatest and the last enemy, even that will be destroyed. And so we should never live in fear or feel that we are hopeless or that there is no salvation for us. For God is there for us and he's coming to set us free. And finishing off there in verse 5, we are told that God has rejected them. The enemies of God will be rejected and put to shame. One commentator puts it this way. He says, for the word of the Lord has rejected them. You know, he says this means that God has rejected them as filthy, loathsome, and abominable and cast them alive into the lake of fire. 
That is the path that all the people who reject God will take. And those who come to God, their sinfulness sees a similar death on the cross. God crushes it and he kills it. The old sinful man is put to death. And in Christ we are raised to a newness of life. And so now, having spoken to them about the judgment of God, the psalmist goes on in verse 6 to talk about the hope of restoration. And he says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. No, this psalm or this song now ends with a prayer. A prayer that says, Oh, would salvation come. That salvation would come out of Zion. Zion was that hill where the city of David was. You know, the city of God as it is often referred to. And so the psalmist is saying, oh, that salvation would come from there. You know, David was the king of Israel who won many battles for them. And so as they are thinking here, saying that, oh, salvation would come out of Zion, out of the city of David, they, they are now again getting their confidence back that God will deliver them. If they've seen God deliver them through the hands of David. But we know that David is but a type of Christ. He was a king, but he's a type of the true king. Jesus Christ, the true king, who comes to lead a host of captives in him. And that we know that in Christ there is deliverance from all our enemies. But most importantly, there's deliverance from sin. So here the, the psalmist closes the song that salvation would come out of Zion. That salvation would come ultimately as we know that the the Old Testament is pointing forward. It is speaking of the mystery that will be revealed. That salvation would come through Jesus Christ. For he is the true king. He is the one who sits on the throne of David. And it is saying here that salvation would come for Israel. I just want to emphasize here that even though it's saying that salvation for Israel, it doesn't mean just Israel is that salvation would come for all of God's people. For we know that salvation is for all and not only for the Jews. And again, you know, the, the New Testament gives us clarity into what the Old Testament teaches. And so Paul, in Ephesians 2.11, says these words, which I think will help us in just understanding that when he says all salvation would come for Israel, it is not just for ethnic Jews or Israelites, but it is for any who would put their faith in Christ. It says in Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by the, by the circumcision, which is, made by ha- which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In Christ there is unity. This salvation comes to everyone. That is why John says in John 3 that we know that for God so loved the world. Not that God so loved the Jews or Israel, but he loved the world. Salvation is made available to all, regardless of creed, ethnicity, social status, your level of education. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and that is anyone. 
This salvation here that we hear of in verse 6 is open to anyone who would call on the name of the Lord. And again, I want to emphasize here that the struggle will end. Whether you are living in fear that you would be attacked or you're toiling against sin, that struggle will end. Fortunes will be restored and you will rejoice as we see there in that verse. And this rejoicing that happens, it happens now in light of this news, but we look forward to when Christ comes back in glory and we get to fully experience his blessings. And in closing now, as we come to an end, I think it is important to remember that this song, you know, next time we're weighed down to remember this particular song, that when we're weighed down by the attacks of the enemy, whether visible or invisible, you know, when, whether we've got external or external pressures, we must remember this. Remember this song and what it promises. And in having remembered it, we must then call upon the name of the Lord in the day of trouble, for he will deliver you and you shall glorify him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the psalm of David, a psalm that meets us in our time of distress and brings us hope from Zion. We pray all this now in the name of the one who comes to take away our distress, the one who brings rejoicing back into our lives, the one who restores our fortunes, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.